Let's open the Bibles to John 9. John chapter 9, about the man born blind. 41 verses about this miracle of healing by our Lord Jesus Christ with some wonderful wisdom contained in some of the first verses. In verse 2, the disciples have asked Jesus, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I showed that that is not a very good question to ask, that there's examples in the Bible of men asking that, and they were out of place and out of line, and we want to be like Elihu. Elihu was very angry at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for picking on Job the way they did without knowing the real event and the real circumstances of Job's trials. The answer to Job is in that 33rd chapter, God is greater than man. Everything that happens in our lives that might be painful, disappointing, we don't really understand. We can just say God is greater than man. God did it. He gave. He took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job worshipped. When David's little boy died, David worshipped. And so we ought to worship. Uh, Even though things may be unhappy answers at times that we think from the Lord, he has greater wisdom than we do, and he sees a whole lot more than we're seeing by our very narrow view of things. Now the disciples have asked, Master, who did sin this man or his parents that he was born blind? This man or his parents. How did the apostles intend their question about his sin that was born blind. They could have intended sin in the womb. Psalm 51 does say that in sin did my mother conceive me, but it's hardly true because of Romans 9.13 that says Jacob and Esau having done neither good nor evil in their mother's womb. Why'd they ask that? It could have been sin in the womb. They could have intended sin that he would commit later but was judged in advance. We don't know. But I want to tell you what commentators say. All of them. It's sad. Most commentators suggest Jewish belief in the Pythagorean transmigration of the soul, otherwise known as metempsychosis, or, as you know it, reincarnation. I don't think so. I don't go there. I'm going to give the disciples a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt than worshiping at the chair of Pythagoras. You know, you might want to use Pythagoras when you're dealing with a right-angle triangle, but when we're dealing with anything beyond first-grade math, we don't need Pythagoras, especially when it comes to the soul. Greeks didn't know anything about the soul compared to what the Bible tells us about the soul. You know, we're supposed to learn things about the soul and spirit because that in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, God would say to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, who died 400 years earlier, meaning that Abraham's soul, spirit, was still in existence, and God was still the God of that living soul somewhere else. We trust the Bible. Anyway, forget them. It doesn't matter. The the disciples asked about the issue of sin, and Jesus says it's not his sin, and it's not his parents' sin, as we get into the third verse. The Jews, however, and we've got to deal with this. We should want to deal with it. The Jews, due to divine revelation, did understand punishment for parental sins. That question was valid. God judges parental sins. Do I need to turn you to the passage that says he brings the iniquities of the fathers and the children of the third and the, up to the third and the fourth generation? It's repeated numerous times in the Old Testament. Noah cursed Ham's son Canaan for what Ham had done. Joshua, by God's word, killed any living thing related to Achan, including his children in Joshua chapter 7. God told David his son by Bathsheba would die for his, David's, sin. God killed all the posterity of Jeroboam, Baasha, and Ahab for the father's sins. 
observe that the father to son judgment in these cases, in, in some of these cases, were of godly men. Like in David's case, his sin cost his son his life, even though that son was an infant. Now, if you don't like that arrangement, there's other churches in Greenville that might give you a different explanation. Right. I love that arrangement because it's in the Bible. Amen. And the greatest example of all is one father costing 100 billion three deaths. That's 300 billion deaths from one father in the Garden of Eden, and that's our first father, Adam. Consistent with this, by revelation of these examples and God's... Do you, know what, do you know that it says it like Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 when it's giving the Ten Commandments in this particular place? It says in verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. These are false gods, idols that can't do anyone any good or evil. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So if you happen to be born into a family that hated God, there is a judgment hanging over that family to the third and the fourth generation. But let me read the next verse. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So you can change that by loving God. That is why in Exodus chapter 18, God told the Israelites that their proverb was wrong. The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The parents, I mean, the Israelites there were saying, the reason that you're unhappy with us, the reason that you're judging us is our parents' fault. And, and the Lord, through Ezekiel, condemned their false use of that proverb by pointing out that if a son of a wicked man repents and does righteousness, that son will be dealt with on a one-on-one basis with God. If that son continues in the course of his father, he'll be judged for his father's sins and his own sins. God is fair and right. And Ezekiel 18, they, they were saying God's ways are not equal. And he said, my ways are equal. If you'll repent, any judgment that I'm bringing on this nation for your parents will be lifted, and I'll deal with you. You just need to read the whole chapter. You know, if you want to get yourself a soundbite that God doesn't judge children for parental sins, then you can go in there and find a soundbite here or there. But then if you read the whole thing, you'll find out that it's a repentant son that is delivered from his father's sins and their judgment. Consistent with the examples that I gave you, let's think of some large-scale ones. I've mentioned Adam in the Garden of Eden. God drowned and suffocated by the flood all infants and children on earth. God killed by his death angel all the infants and children of the Egyptians. God killed by annihilation and genocide all Canaanite infants and children. God killed by bad laws the infants of rebellious Jews who offered their children in sacrifice to idols by God turning them over to a reprobate mind to do so. That's Ezekiel chapter 20. God killed by starvation and other means all Jewish children that were in the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Jews knew this guilt connection enough to ask for it. His blood be on us and on our children. And it was. I just told you the answer to that. If you were born into an ungodly, wicked family, then you better be living virtuous and repent of their iniquities and repent of your own and live for the Lord, and you can stop that. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. Wow, that verse, that clause so far needs a little bit of explanation. Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. This will serve us well on Wednesday evening when we look at the second rule of Bible study. The first rule of Bible study helps us as well. We know that that's not true on its face value. There must be some other sense the the Lord intends it. And he does so by the smaller context around it. And Wednesday will be the smaller context, rule number two. Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents... And what is understood, that he was born blind. 
that he was born blind was not because of his sin, and that he was born blind was not because of his parents' sin. That's all that it means. And you, you can't go into the Bible and pull out some part of a thought, part of reasoning, and make a complete point from it. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. This man was born blind for the manifestation of the works of God through his life. It wasn't because of his sin or his father's sins, and his mother's sins, his parents' sins, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The man was born blind for God's use of him to get God and his son glory. Is that okay with you? Amen. It should be okay with you. How long it had it been? Is this boy six? He is of age, meaning that he was going to go to kindergarten at Braille school? Was he 12 or was he 30? He is of age, most likely 30. Anybody under 30 wasn't really listened to because you don't know enough yet. You haven't seen life. You don't understand. Um, he had been blind for quite a while. Is that okay with you? It's better than okay with me. If it's the will of God, it's glorious, it's perfect, it's infinite in wisdom and justice and righteousness. He should have been born a quadriplegic. If God were fair, right. he should have had elephant titus to go along with blindness. If God were fair, he should have had leprosy along with his elephant titus and being a quadriplegic if God was fair. He should have been deaf and dumb as well if God was fair. God is merciful and gracious. Amen. And he was a fine son. Who wouldn't have a smile in their heart or on their face? listening to him on trial with the Pharisees. We're going to get smiles on our faces 2,000 years later reading about that son. He had done pretty well with his Braille books, hadn't he? Or did God help him out? His wisdom was beautiful, as we shall see. The Son of God was made manifest or clearly revealed by a man's healing in this case. And so the works of God, remember... We read passages this morning to open our, our services today, and I sent one to you last night about the gospel. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was endowed with power from heaven, and he went about doing good and miracle, with miracles, signs, and wonders that showed him to be the Son of God. And this is one of the, the signs, one of the miracles that he did that showed him to be the Son of God. You know how the chapter is going to end. Do you believe on the Son of God? Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? That's what this whole chapter is working up toward because the whole book is working up toward do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? So we're going to get that question asked by Jesus to the man born blind at the end of this chapter. Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Well, you've seen him, and he's talking to you right now. Lord, I believe. I believe! The glory of God was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ by this deed, and God chose that he would be born blind and live 35 years. Let's just go ahead and pick a number. Live 35 years blind. The burden that it caused his parents, the burden that it caused him, was for the glory of God. If a burden in our lives brings glory to God, should we say with Paul, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Because when I am weak, then am I strong, and God gets glory for working through me through an infirmity. That's what we should do. Miracles were a witness of Jesus Christ, and so the one here. Remember in John chapter 5, it was the one impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 10 and 11, we're going to get Lazarus. And so forth. Miracles testified of Jesus Christ. Jesus would get so frustrated with the Jews at times that he would say, if you don't believe me, then just believe for the work's sakes. Can't you see what's being done in front of you? As the blind man will explain to the Pharisees, from the foundation of the world, it hasn't been known that a man could make a man born blind see. And so these were, these were unheard of miracles and displays of divine power. If you think that you were born for a higher purpose than God's glory or another purpose than God's glory, 
Get down now before the Lord puts you down. The reason you exist is the glory of God. It's not your pleasure. It's not your comfort. It's not your purpose. It's not your plans. It's not your productivity. It's the glory of God. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's what the Bible teaches in Proverbs 16.4. God glorified himself in Pharaoh one way, and this man another way. He glorified himself in Pharaoh drowning in the midst of the Red Sea. He glorified himself in this man's life by giving him sight after 35 years. The event is comparable, and the terminology is helpful when we look over two chapters about Lazarus. In John chapter 11, John chapter 11, Martha and Mary send to Jesus that Lazarus is sick and that he needs to come and heal whom thou lovest, because they knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death. Did he die? Yes. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So that, that terminology might help you as we come back to John chapter 9 and verse 3, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. God's work was to endow Jesus with power who was able to give sight to a man born blind. And it happened right in front of witnesses. And it happened in front of him, and it happened in front of his disciples, and it was to manifest Jesus Christ. Do not judge things hastily. How long was it, did it take for the glory of God to be revealed in this man's blindness? 35 years. We want to know the reason when it happens. We think we have a right to know the reason when it happens. There are things that happen in our lives that we don't appreciate until later. Right. When we're able to look back with greater wisdom and other circumstances and, think, and events that have occurred since that event that we're looking at, then we're able to see it in far better light than when we see it then when it happens. Amen. We have a weak, superficial response initially, and we gain insight over time. What a testimony this blind man made in court against the Pharisees. It would not have happened without 35 years of blindness. When trials happen in your lives of all kinds, you do not know the, the value that you're going to have in the experience, as Brother Jim shared with you a few minutes ago, that you will have later to help others and to glorify God. That's right. Don't make a hasty judgment. Right. Think more slowly and think more carefully. Right. It's glorious wisdom to recognize that God is the potter and you are only the clay. Amen. Don't ever forget it. Let me turn you to one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and it's Isaiah 45, about God being a potter and us being the clay. He does not owe you sight or hands. Get over yourself. Right now, get over yourself. He is God. This is what we, we believe the Bible. We don't care what anyone or everyone else thinks. We believe the Bible. He doesn't owe you sight or hands. Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Woe! There's an exclamation point. Do you mind if I'm loud? Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. He's the maker. You're what's made. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Go ahead and debate your cause with the other broken pieces of pottery walking about on this planet. There's seven and a half billion of them. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth, but don't strive with your maker. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work... He hath no hands. Is it appropriate for a clay vessel to say to the potter, Hey, you made me without hands. What are you doing making me without hands? Is that appropriate for clay to say that to a potter? It is not appropriate. And it's used here. 
And it's used in Romans chapter 9 when it comes to salvation and eternal destiny. That is the God that we worship. I love Him. He gave us a perfect universe. He gave us the tree of life. He gave Adam the perfect wife. He gave Adam a perfect mind. He gave Adam a perfect body. And we didn't like it that way. We chose death and we chose a lie. Anything He gives us better than eternal torment is better than we deserve. He's glorious sovereign of the universe. I love Him just the way the Bible describes Him. I love this verse. Let the broken pieces of pottery argue among themselves. I'm going to laugh at them. I'm going to love my maker. You say, well, that's because he gave you hands. But he only made me 5'9". And you know that's bothered me for 60 years. And that's just to, that's just to relieve the tension. And to smile again, Brother Jim. I like that passage. Amen. It is glorious wisdom. It is wisdom. It'll help give you a proper perspective on life to recognize that he's the potter and we're the clay. He can use you as he chooses, so praise him for the privilege of being used. That's right. Oh, didn't we just pray for that, Brother James? God, glorify yourself to us and through us. Use me. Use me. Did you ladies hear on Wednesday evening about surrendering to God? Surrender to Him. Why would you hold on to you? You are the least thing that you ought to hold on to in the universe. Surrender. Surrender to God. Surrender to His will. Surrender to His choices in your life. It's the only happy way to live. It's the right way to live. He makes perfect choices. We sing a song, Lord, I surrender all, all to thee we should give. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was only for God's glory by his total ruin. King Sennacherib of Assyria was only an axe, a saw, a rod, or a staff, depending on which metaphor you prefer from Isaiah chapter 10. Do not ever think you or anything you have is more than a gift from God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. Verse 3 is answering the question of verse 2. Verse 2 is our ordinary, impulsive, ignorant view of life. When something extraordinarily bad happens to someone, it must be judgment for sin. The barbarous folks on the island of Melita did it to Paul. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did it to Job. It's, It's an ordinary response. It's an ignorant response. And if you know the Bible, you don't ask questions like that. You ask another question that we're going to have in just a moment. Jesus answers by saying, it is not an issue of sin. It's not his sin. It's not his parents' sin. It's another issue. And the issue is the glory of God. And we want to think on that. And let, let me take the last minutes that I have and remind you of something that I have taught more than once, and I have taught it in detail, and you ought to go look at that outline if you would like to see the detail and think on it, and that is, why do bad things happen to Christians? Why did this bad event happen to the man born blind? Why was he born blind? Jesus told us it was for the glory of God. It was for God's works to be manifest through him that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. There are four. And instead of saying, who sinned? You're a barbarous person when you do that. Elihu should be angry with you when you do that. Jesus denies your question when you bring up sin as your first response. There's other reasons why things happen, and the Bible tells us all about them. The four are the greater glory of God, this one right here, the trial of your faith, to make your faith better by putting it through a little adversity. What our government does with soldiers before it sends them into combat. You want them to have endured something before they're out there facing life-threatening situation. The chastening of your sins, God's loving spanking of you to turn you back to him, and fourth, 
the natural consequences of your foolishness. Now, we could, if we wanted to strain at a gnat, come up with more categories. But in order to keep it simple, these are the four. Bad things do happen to Christians. Wise men prepare for them and respond rightly to them. The best of men can have negative events. Naomi? What happened to Naomi? Her husband died. Her two sons died. Terrible. How'd she get to end her life? Nursing David's grandfather. The best of men. Jacob. Look at the trouble he endured. Look at Joseph and the trouble he endured. Why do bad things happen? God's government of all things is a sure foundation for our faith. God has made choice that we're going to have a bad event in our lives or bad events, and they are for good reasons, and they can generally be thrown into four buckets. And the four buckets are God's glory, the refining of our faith, the purifying of our faith to make it better, chastening for our sins, or just natural consequences of us being stupid, natural consequences of foolishness. Let me try to just briefly run through them as we conclude John 9, 3. A trained response does not complain or fret against God, but worships. Job worshiped. And that is how we ought to respond to bad events in our lives. David worshiped. We brought the bad things by Adam's sin and your sin, so only, always, blame the one that's responsible. You. Don't blame others and certainly don't blame God. God is more merciful than you you would ever be. You would never be as merciful as he is to you towards someone that has done to you what you've done against God. All trials are comparable, which is why I gave you 1 Corinthians 10, 13 earlier, even though they may be different in kind. Believe it, that they're comparable. There are things going on in this church that you do not know about that are as weighty as anyone else's trial in this church that you may know about. It is selfish, cruel hate that thinks you're special and that your trials are uniquely terrible. There are other trials I do not like knowing about them. Because then your trials become my trials. And I would just as soon not have so many. I hope you all understand me saying that. I just wish all of you would believe 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and embrace the trial God's given you. Mm -hmm. Embrace it and take the strength of Christ flowing through you to rise above it to live through it, and to glorify God because of it. Because without it, you couldn't glorify God. You can't glorify God in prosperity. Tell me how you're going to do it compared to adversity. It's a thorn in the flesh that gave Paul the opportunity to glorify God. The greater glory of God is why some bad things happen to Christians. This is what happened right here. It's what happened for Lazarus. Why did Lazarus get sick? Why did Lazarus die from his sickness? Why did Jesus take so long coming to help Lazarus get better before he died? Why did Jesus take so long that he knew he was going to die? Why did Jesus take so long so that he would die? I thought he loved Lazarus. Oh, but Lazarus got to live again. And somebody would say to me, he got to die again. Well, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as closely as Lazarus did, it was worth it. And it was for the glory of God. And what a glorious demonstration of Jesus Christ's power it was to cry, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. It was beautiful for the glory of God. He may have chosen you as an opportunity for his glory, and he has the right to do so, and you should be thankful for that privilege. God gets greater glory from faithfulness in adversity than faithfulness during prosperity. God may turn your circumstances to get himself greater glory in the future, so embrace the problem. But he may not. Are there any trials in my life? I'm not going to tell, it, tell you about them very often. Because your trials are more important. 
Do I have any? Can you think of any? All glory to God. Amen. Am I a hero of the faith? Oh, no. But he can do whatever he wants to with me or mine. He may not turn the circumstances, so he'll give you grace for them. So will you embrace the circumstances anyway? If you don't have any terrible circumstances in your life right now, you're going to. So if you're thinking, well, this, Pat, this doesn't really apply to me very much, and you're just thinking about someone else in the church, or some two other people in the church, or three other, they're coming. Those of you that just want to keep on having babies, they're coming. That's one of the ways. There's jobs, there's finances, there's our own health, there's spiritual derelicts, all kinds of ways that the Lord can try us Let's embrace it. He may reverse that situation down the road and we'll thank him for it. He may not. And we'll live through it and we'll live above it and get him glory by being cheerful, which is real patience, cheerfully enduring negative events through the glory and strength of Christ. Can you, as Elihu told Job, ascribe bad events to these five words? God is greater than man. That is the explanation to the book of Job. It's Job chapter 33 and verse 12. It is the explanation to the book of Job. It's Elihu telling Job the solution to the whole thing. God is greater than man. He can take all this away from you and take your health away from you because he wants to. Humble yourself and embrace it instead of arguing about how righteous you were. How unfair it is how it's not fair for you to have so much taken away from you when the wicked are so fat and happy. That's what Job was doing. And do you know what Elihu told Job in the next couple of chapters? If you don't shut up and stop talking that way, he is going to cut you off right now. If you would have got off your high horse and humbled yourself that God has a right to take away what he's given you, he would have already put you back in the land of fatness, and you'd be sitting at your table, one, table wondering what you're going to put on your plate next. He said that's all in Job chapter 36. Number two, the, the greater glory of God. That's the born, man born blind. 35 years of blindness. He didn't have a seeing eye dog. Who is it? Who is it? 35 years. How many times does he complain in this chapter? Never. Were there opportunities where he could have complained? He could have told the Lord a real sob story. Oh, Lord, do you know how hard it's been being blind for 35 years? But he didn't. And he was healed. Number two, the trial of your faith is why some bad things happen to Christians. God may bring adversity and affliction into your life to test our faithfulness regardless of our obedience. He just wants to give us an, ex an experience in life to build greater faith for greater hope for the future. God bragged of Job's integrity, but he took everything Job had to test his faith. See, Job didn't sin. There wasn't sin involved in Job chapter 1. There wasn't sin involved in Job chapter 2. There was God trying Job's faith. And Job did well in the beginning and then didn't do so well. God bragged about Job, but then he took everything. Adversity has enormous positive effects on our lives. It's the only way you can be perfect. You can't be perfect by prosperity. You are made perfect by adversity. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. J James tells us that we ought to rejoice in our tribulations. Knowing this... My brethren, count it all joy. That's not a little bit of joy, that's all joy. Count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. Different kinds of temptations. Count it all joy. Is this Bible truth? Amen. Here it is. I believe it. Amen. I'm teaching it to you because it's God's word to us. My brethren, not my enemies, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, this is why we preach, 
This is to have a prepared, trained response. Trouble will come. It is not if, it's when, and it's how you will respond to that trouble that will surely come. Here is how you respond. Knowing this, here's what we need to know. That the trying of your faith worketh patience. God knows that you believe in him. He is going to allow a trial in your life to refine that faith that you have to teach you patience. But let patience have her perfect work. Don't fight it. Don't argue against it. Let God bring this trial. Embrace it. Believe him through it. Let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. A perfect Christian, by this passage, and by Romans 5, 3 through 5, which is the twin passage to this one, tells us that perfection is learning to cheerfully endure, by faith, negative events in your life. So count it all joy when God brings them by this particular bucket of reasons why bad things happen to Christians. It's to make you perfect. Can you complain against that? Can you complain against the greater glory of God, which was bucket number one? No, both. We should be thankful for both. If the word of God is true, we should be thankful for both. Soldiers are only adequately prepared for combat by intense and difficult training beforehand. What kind of men do you want to send out on the battlefield that haven't been trained for it so that they have an instinctive response? We want to have an instinctive response that is given to us by an inspired word of God. We want an inspired response. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm 103 all over again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, who taketh away all that he gave me. Is that Psalm 103? It's a variation on Psalm 103, based on Job chapter 1. Remember, our Lord Jesus himself was tried severely immediately after his baptism. Tried severely for the perfecting of his faith and the demonstration of his faith and taking the devil on directly. As it is written, as it is written, as it is written three times, the Lord Jesus answered Satan. If you question or resent a trial, you beg God to lengthen or toughen it. That's Job, chapter 36, and Elihu's warning to Job. If you resent or question a trial, you beg God to lengthen it or toughen it. I am telling you the secrets of the universe revealed to us by the God of the universe, by the God that controls every single event in your life and knows the hairs on your head, any event that he allows, if you question or argue or resent against the maker, he tells you to go fight it out with the other broken pieces of pottery on this planet that he's not going to put up with it. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? Embrace it. Please embrace it because of the warning of it getting worse. After God has comforted you in a trial, you're better fit to comfort others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where it uses comfort about four times. That you can comfort others with the comfort wherewith God has comforted you. But you've got to have a trial to be able to comfort someone else. If you come to somebody else and you've never had a trial, how are you going to relate to them? It's the trial of your faith. It's the building of your faith. It's the perfection of your faith. And it moves us to bucket number three, or reason number three why bad things happen to Christians, and it's the chastening of your sins. God judges his people practically for their sins, but he does it as a loving father. He does it to turn us back into the way of righteousness. His affliction is in faithfulness. His chastening is in love. His scourging is because he delights in us. He wants us to be perfect. He wants us to be better. It's why a parent disciplines children. Because we're following the great example of our Heavenly Father chastening us. His chastening is said to be grievous, but it is in love. It's for our profit, and it's a whole lot milder than it could be, and that hell is. I hope you follow all those. His chastening is said to be grievous. It is compared to scourging in Hebrews chapter 12, but it's done in love. It's done for our profit. And it's milder than what it could be. When parents discipline, 
It is always imperfect discipline. The punishment never equals the crime perfectly. The parent never has perfect motives toward the child for their profit. But I can tell you something about our Heavenly Father. That is not true, either of those examples. In his case, the punishment is better than the crime deserves. It's easier than the crime deserves because he's merciful. And he always does it for our profit. And with infinite wisdom, he has arranged the perfect trial in your life. The trial in your life is not a result of chance. God is not up there doing this. He is infinitely wise. There's no chance in the matter. He knows you better than you know you. He knows me better than he knows me. He knows how to get to me. He knows how to press me to see if I'll trust him. He knows how to press you. He knows how to chasten you for your sins. Chastening is to turn you back into the way of righteousness, and it's a proof of eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 11, those Corinthians died as evidence of their eternal life. Now that's severe chastening. Paul said, many of you are weak, sickly, and many are already dead. That's pretty severe chastening. But it was evidence of their eternal life. It was evidence of God's love. He cut them off so that they wouldn't disgrace the Lord's Supper anymore and they could be an example to the simple in the church at Corinth. Because when the scorner is smitten, the simple beware. There was residual value in that church at Corinth by the church cemetery filling up sooner than it should have. Chastening for sin is the third reason. God's judgment in one area may override obedience in that area. The Israelites sowed in Haggai chapter 1, but it brought forth very little. And what it did bring forth, it went into a bag of wages with holes in it because they weren't building the house of God. But notice, they were working. But their job didn't work for them because they weren't taking care of the house of the Lord. So these are just, this is just wisdom the Bible teaches us. And the book of Haggai is written for this purpose. Chapter 2 carefully explains if a priest has a sanctified piece of flesh and brushes something, does it make that unsanctified thing sanctified and holy? Or does it defile the sanctified piece of flesh? There's There's a lesson there for us. And so it's to remember that we should examine our lives and we should keep God's commandments in every part of our lives, not just one where we think we're being chastened, for that particular part of life. Righteousness in one area of your life does not sanctify the other areas. I just reminded you of that illustration in the second chapter of Haggai. God may grant forgiveness, yet punish you for the sin. He forgave David. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord hath forgiven thee. However, the Lord hath forgiven thee. However, You're going to have occasion to face this the rest of your life. In your family. With your son Absalom. And the child's going to die because you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And God can chasten you for the indirect lesson it gives others. How many times does it say in the book of Deuteronomy that certain sins were to be stoned and therefore all Israel shall hear and fear and do no more such evil. All all these reasons come through chastening. Chastening is great. That's why it says, smite the scorner, and the simple will beware. That applies to families, it applies to churches, it applies to businesses. Smite the scorner, and the simple, oh, so the one with the big mouth, the one that's been getting away with all this, he just got put in his place, and so it humbles everyone to be more careful. And so it is with God's chastening. That's the third reason. The fourth reason is the consequences of foolishness. It's your fault. Don't blame God at all. It's not sin. It's not a trial of your faith. And it's not chastening for your sins. You just haven't taken care of this part of your life and you're paying the just due for it, not taking care of it the way you should have. 
your adversity or your affliction may simply be the result of your own past or present folly. The Bible is full of warnings that foolish or hasty choices cause pain. Proverbs chapter, this is a lesson that we're getting of, in philosophy of how and why things happen in life because of the disciples' question, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Proverbs 21 and verse 5, the thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of everyone that is hasty, only to want. If you want to be hasty and impatient, you'll end up in poverty. If you want to be careful and diligent, those thoughts tend toward plenteousness as just one example of many. Chapter 22, how about being foolish in risk-taking? Be not thou of one of them that strike hands or of them that are sureties for debts. If thou hast nothing to pay, why should he take away thy bed from under thee? It's just a warning about the risk of taking on unnecessary debt or taking on contingent liabilities. You want to limit your debt. You want to, find, you want to ensure everything that would be catastrophic or affect your lifestyle. It's a duty of the Word of God. And if you don't do it, you suffer for it. And our church is not a general insurance fund. Natural men can profit from practicing God's wisdom because there are natural consequences to natural obedience, natural intelligence, natural wisdom, natural diligence, natural saving, natural risk avoidance. There's benefits to those things. A nation can be pagan and practice capital punishment, and it's a deterrent to murder in that nation. The more hastily that it is executed, and the more publicly that it is executed, before blaming God, or claiming to be a martyr, or claiming to be giving up something for the Lord, own up to your own dereliction of duty. There are so many categories of life. If you mess around in school, you are going to have to put forth greater effort in the future in order to make a living and have a comfortable life. All you young people, you're three weeks into the school year. Are you doing your best? Are you falling behind in any subject? You better be keeping up. You better apply yourself diligently. By reasonable calculations, every hour that you spend in school and every hour that you spend in homework is worth $200 an hour because that is the benefit it will give you by a better paying job in the future because you're going to school now. It's 200 bucks an hour. Are you getting behind? Are you using the syllabus that the teacher gave you as a warning of the last day that you can work on a project before it's due? Or are you using the syllabus that a teacher gave you to be working on it early ahead of time? Because if you don't, there's gonna be consequences to pay. This fourth reason why bad things happen Dad, Dad, I haven't wanted to show you this report card. It's got two F's on it. I think the Lord's trying my faith. <laughs> no, the Lord's trying my faith. <laughs> is what the Father should say back. Are you, are you with me? Yes. Don't, don't get these confused when one is obviously our fault, not God's fault. Right. Oh, you know, if you marry the wrong person... Oh, God can still give grace. But don't blame God. Oh, remember how eager and aggressive you were? This is the one. This is the one. You don't save money. You have no cushion. You're in trouble. And on and on it goes. You don't want to exercise and you want to overeat? On and on it goes. You're going to have health problems. Have fun. Enjoy them. You say, but doesn't God make bodies different? Sure, he makes bodies different, and we make bodies different. Right. Why are you going to blame God? Was this man born blind because it was a natural consequence of foolishness? No. He was born blind for the glory of God. I'm just reminding you of four buckets that are very helpful when you're looking at life to see for the glory of God, for the perfection of my faith, for the chastening of my sin, and because I was stupid and there are consequences to stupidity. And God's able to put them all together sometimes. 
and accomplish a whole lot Amen. with our choices. Some choices have long-term results. I've mentioned education. I've mentioned marriage. You commit a crime. It goes on your record. You don't get a transferable skill. You're put, you got to put forth so much more effort when you don't have a transferable skill. And transferable skills in, in fulfilling that short description you know, go from 10 to 1 to, to the varying degrees of if you really have a transferable skill or not. Current obedience and wisdom, even if God has forgiven you, may not fully cover past folly. Because he wants there to be a lesson in your life, he wants his word confirmed, and he wants a lesson for other people's lives. There's the four reasons. What are they again? The glory of God, the perfection of your faith, the chastening of your sins, natural consequences of foolishness. This, this man had not looked at a total solar eclipse without glasses. This man was born blind for the glory of God, and he had spent 35 years blind for the glory of God. Yeah. And did God get glory? Amen. God got glorious glory, which we will get to see. How you respond to bad things in life is the important lesson to learn, retain, and practice. Our God's wise enough to combine one or more of these reasons. Never question or charge God foolishly. That's what Job 2 and verse 10 tells us. Never charge or question God foolishly. No anger. Be very humble and meek. With this information that's just been shared with you today, there's a silver lining in every cloud, no matter which of the four. Is God fair? He is better than fair. Amen. What about Job? Better than fair. You deserve hell. We should laugh at life, light troubles, which has already been mentioned. When bad things happen, good things still outnumber them. In your life, do the good things outnumber the bad things 10 to 1? 100 to 1? 10,000 to 1? It is your sinful nature, or mine, spoiled disposition, or selfish envy that choose sad negativity about trials in your life. It's your sin nature. It's the fact that you're spoiled in your disposition. You're selfishly envious of others, but you don't embrace your life and the choices God's made. The fastest way to recovery is repentance, submission to God, worship of God, service to God, to repair whatever you've done wrong and fulfill your duty in every commandment God's given you. That is to repent, submit, worship, serve, repair, and obey. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.